Hi, everyone. I know that was a lot of words during the guided meditation, but I wanted to paint a picture for this practice, and it can be a lot quieter if you pick it up than during the week and just do your best with it. Some of you probably have heard the story that Joseph Goldstein tells of one of his teachers when he was in Burma, Saida Upandita, and I think at the time, Joseph's practice felt a little, or he or both he and the teacher felt that the practice was a little stuck or not going anywhere. And Sayadaw said to Joseph, uh, why don't you, or he probably wouldn't put it in form of a question, he probably said, reflect on your sila. <laughs> and Joseph immediately after leaving the interview, you don't really have a chance to kind of ask for an explanation. And he says that he immediately thought he'd done something bad, you know, and, and Saidu Pandita was saying, you know, you're probably doing something bad. That's why your practice isn't going well. So reflect on it. But that isn't what he meant at all. He meant more what we were trying to do tonight, which is to do the contemplation in a way that brings up a lot of mental bliss, a lot of happiness, because we're strategically paying attention in these, you know, that range that I've talked about before, so the grosser level is practicing sila as a restraint and then as a positive ideal and then as an expression of wisdom, of the wisdom of non-clinging. Like what does non-harming look like when it's coming out of the wisdom of a heart that's not lost or caught in self-centered dramas? So you're looking at how that's operating in your life, non-harming at different frequency levels, you could say. And it's like mudita. You're appreciating the beauty of it. And that uh, that appreciation of the beauty is making you happy. And the mind, the mental energy, is gathering around that reflection, just in the same way it would gather around loving kindness, if that's what you were meditating on, or the breath, if that's what you were meditating on. These themes are just the meditation object. They're not different than other meditation objects. It's just image and concept instead of sensation. But it's still something that's here in the present moment that the mind is gathering around. And then as the energy builds, as the mind becomes more happy, then as much as the theme, the thoughts around sila, is the pleasant feeling of concentration itself, the mind, in a sense, delighting in itself. So we have the nice structure, we have that range of frequency, as I've been calling it, from the more gross level, you're looking at your life in a more gross level, where you're appreciating the wholesome force of restraint as it's operating in your life. And restraint looks like regret, wholesome regret can be what's behind restraint, and wholesome concern or fear, like a wholesome fear. Like, oh yeah, if I do that, this is likely to happen. So don't be crowding that person in front of me in the, on the freeway. Back off a little, guy, you know? Because I feel this concern, like if I'm so close, I might make him nervous, you know, and he'll do something stupid. Or, you know, or I won't be able to react if something bad happens. You know, I won't be able to stop in time. So just simple things like that, like really appreciating how that is built in. And then go to something more subtle, like how the heart uh, likes the idea of being the one who doesn't harm, being the one who doesn't take what isn't given, being the one who uh, is like really skillful around in their sexual activities. You know, just the beauty of that, that skill, sort of turning it into something beautiful, into something sort of just a problem in life. And then the last, the most subtle frequency is like when we're um, operating with the five precepts of non-harming, non-stealing, not getting involved in sexual misconduct or false speech, harmful speech, or intoxicating the mind, that that's just like couldn't be otherwise, given that the mind isn't caught in self-centered dramas. Being a good person in those five ways, being a wise person, skillful person in those five ways. It's just the 
effortless expression of not being deluded, in moments at least, right? It's like there are moments in our life where we're not trying to be generous or we're not trying to speak wisely, kindly. It's just natural and effortless. And we want to think about those. We want to bring them to mind and be delighted, you know, be happy, appreciating those moments. So before I move on, any comments about the... um, the guided meditation tonight, or just generally this practice of reflecting on sila as a meditation practice. Because I'd, I'd encourage you, you could do it during the day too, or even like while you're walking, when your mind's, you don't have to do a lot of talking or other kind of mental cog- cognitive activity. You can just let this churn through your mind where you're thinking about sila, but not as in a, in a judgmental way, like at your shortcomings, but pointing out to yourself the positive parts, like how there is restraint, not where there wasn't restraint. Or even if you do bring to mind where there wasn't restraint, now notice how there's wholesome regret. And like appreciate that wholesome regret, like the mind knows it made a mistake. That's good. It's good when you make a mistake that the mind knows it. And we can appreciate that, even though the regret in a sense is painful, but it's good pain. It's good to feel badly when we've made a mistake because it, it's like I said, it's a monument like, yeah, good. At least I know that was a mistake. I'm not fooling myself. Yeah, Bruce. Well, you know, this is the important thing. We have to... It's, it's an art, I guess is a short answer, but we can't be afraid of becoming, uh, we, the way to avoid becoming egocentric, you know, caught up in self-dramas, isn't to avoid joy, <laughs> guaranteed, because that's like that idea, you know, um, the middle way, the teaching on the middle way, the Buddha said that Indulging in sense experience isn't the way, but rejecting sense experience isn't the way. And one, you know, one kind of, on, a, on the level of mental activity, you know, there's, a, there's really a place for mudita, appreciative joy, appreciating what's truly beautiful and good. So we have to access that beauty without constructing a self-story around it. So we can see the integrity that exists in our lives. I mean, all of us have some integrity, right? So we can see that and feel good about it without doing anything about that beautiful feeling except being intimate with it. Like we don't have to tell ourselves a story. We can just open to the goodness of that. So that's the difference. The ego trip comes when we start thinking of ourself as the one who's good compared to somebody else as opposed to just seeing the good. Like we could be just generally feeling good about being here tonight. We had a busy day. We could have stayed home, but we got ourselves here. And um, especially you, Bruce, you know, you had to drive four hours. You know, and that, just that commitment, like it's a wholesome commitment and following through with that commitment we can feel good or we could be thinking about all those fools who are making this kind of commitment in their lives. You know? Now that's not so good. The mind gets tight if it reflects on that kind of comparing being better than or we could be thinking about how, I, how much more I could be doing and then that wouldn't feel, the mind would get tight with that. So it's really, the barometer is like what really makes the mind happy in a wholesome sense, um, more expanded, less constricted states of mind. And see, the thing about that pleasant state of mind is it just makes it so much easier to be skillful because when the mind is tight and reactive, it's just that tightness and reactivity affects the clarity in the mind. The mind just doesn't see as clearly can't be as skillful in the next moment. 
If we want this joy, we need to bring it in, and this is one way to do it. And it changes our whole relationship to morality, which generally, you know, given how we've all been brought up to some degree, it feels like a heavy trip to have to be good. You know, I have to be good or I'll be punished in hell. And, um, I mean, that may be true on some level. I mean, it is true on some level, whether not metaphorically hell, but we actually end up in hell if we do something bad. I mean, that's the definition. In a Buddhist sense, it's completely pragmatic or, I don't know, tautological. Like when we say you do something bad, we mean doing something that puts us in hell, makes the mind really hurt. That's what we mean by doing something bad. If you do something and, it, and you, there's no negative consequences arising, it's not bad. So that's sort of an interesting thing. But here's the, here's the kicker with that. Just because you don't know you're suffering doesn't mean you're not suffering. So there may be a negative consequence to your action, but you may be so distracted in life that you don't realize how your heart, mind, and body is weighed down by that negative activity. It's really, this is the great tragedy that sometimes we're so distracted, so disconnected, that we lose our moral compass. So then we can do things because we think we're immune to consequences. But it's not because we're immune to the consequences, we're just unaware, just not sensitive enough to pick it up. Yeah, Ollie. And that's some of the joy, like you were probably doing more of that third kind of contemplation. So from restraint to a positive ideal, something we aspire to, even identify with can be, I know normally we think of identifying as a negative thing, but to lift ourselves out of a negative identity, we can use a positive identity. So it's, it can be, relatively speaking, skillful. But what sounds like you're pointing to with your image and the way you were reflecting is just more of an effortless goodness and just appreciating how ultimately it doesn't take personal volition. It just takes clarity, like uh, the mind understanding the insanity of grasping. So the mind being free of grasping and then noticing how skillful uh, the mind is, the way of being in the world is from that place. Hummingbirds probably, you know, to us it looks like effortless. (laughs) I always remember, I don't know if it was in high school biology, but how many calories they burn (laughs) being so effortless. Somebody had their hand up. Who was it? Anybody else? Yeah, Michelle. And what I heard in what you were sharing, Michelle, that might be good to reiterate, is that uh, we have to practice at the right level. Like sometimes we want to practice on this more gross level, but that's not where we're operating. We really need to be working at that positive ideal. And then other times we're really free, and it would be a real mistake to kind of be overly concerned about, you know, like not crushing a mosquito on your arm. And it'd be better to just sustain the reality of non-grasping. Like that's a more skillful way to support the practice of integrity. So we have to, we really want to practice at the level that the mind is vibrating at. So if if we're experiencing some space around grasping. The mind isn't, you know, really uh, so much under the influence of those habits of grasping, self-centeredness. Then we want to just trust that. Don't don't feel like like we have to be careful. Like really rely on restraint and concern or regret. But that may be our habit to kind of keep coming into a more dense vibration. You know, I'm the person who has to be careful. Well, is that really true? Maybe I can set that identity aside. Like those identities are skillful at times. We want to be able to pull out regret and uh, concern when we need them. It's like a certain medicine for a certain time. But we may not need it. And you'll notice sometimes, like, 
different being around different people or different situations will pull different things out of us. But we have to always check, like, is that the appropriate medicine I need right now? In the same way, you may be around somebody who's just in a really beautiful place and they're not concerned about uh, restraining themselves from drinking or restraining themselves from sp- this kind of speech or that kind of speech. And, and you might like, oh, I don't want to have to be so concerned. But you may, not, you may have to hold on to your concern and your regret. Like they may be real uh, protect, protectors for you. So this is the interesting thing. We just, it's totally pragmatic. Like, that's why it's nice to do the, the reflection and, and to, like as a training, to kind of think about sila at these different vibrations so that your mind is fluent. You really understand the medicine at all levels, all frequency levels. And then around all these different places. I mean, the five precepts are just helping us look at places in life where we tend to make mistakes where we tend to get really in contracted mind states, you know, around harming, acting out our anger in particular, of course, around stealing, taking something because our greed tells us it would be nice to have it, even if it's not ours exactly, around sexuality, of course, around speech because it's such a potent, uh, could be weapon, but it's like a potent force of action in the world because it just comes out so fast and has such powerful implications. And then around what we do with the mind, like through consumption, how that affects the mind, whether it's drugs or alcohol or other kinds of media that can be just as intoxicating as alcohol or drugs. Other thoughts? Yeah, Bob. Um, I, I, the, with respect to the meditation tonight, um, uh, I, I enjoy humor and I, and I like to bring into my day with people that I circulate with. And I, I sometimes think of myself as, as a recovering sarcastic person. Um, and, and this the last few weeks have given me some more time to think about um, uh, sarcasm and humor. And in the last, I don't know, week or so, including today, um, I was tapping out emails and I would do like maybe a little something at the bottom that would get a chuckle. And, and, and a few things go through my mind. One is, you know, am I, am I doing it to bring attention to myself or, or, or to bring a little levity into a situation? And then another one is, you know, is there anyone that is harmed by this, even in a little way? Yeah. And I had one tapped out today that I deleted, um, or I deleted the, the PS. And it would have put smiles on people's faces. Um, but, but it also had a little, even tiny cost. Um, so the when you asked us to go to kind of places where regret was used for, where we abstained, um, that was a nice... Yeah. It, it affirmed it to me, and it, it gives the sort of the, um, the, the abstinence or the lack of hitting sin feels better than the little kind of fun thing that would happen if I had pushed. Yeah. Did everybody hear Bob? You hear him back there? Yeah, it's such a good example. And, you know, and then the, in terms of the meditative training, we really want to tune in to that good feeling that, that you've experienced. You know, like not missing that good feeling because it really strengthens it, you know, kind of sets it more deeply in the mind stream. The mind stream just gets better at, and that's like a positive feedback loop because the joy then makes the mind uh, more likely to relate, to reflect in this way, then you'll see more, you have more energy, and it really sets in motion this force of sila. And you really want to think of it as a powerful force in the heart, in the mind. And, you know, they, not just in Buddhism, of course, but in most spiritual religious traditions, sila is a big deal. And the thing is, it is a powerful force for happiness. It is the easiest way to become a happy person is to pay attention to sila. And this is not generally how we think about it. We think about it more as a weight, as I said earlier. So it would be nice. I mean, 
most of you know that one of the courses we do with the Buddhist studies is a course, eight-week course on priest, the precepts. And, you know, we should do it every day of our life, be practicing these precepts, but practicing with it like as a direct means for happiness. Reflecting on the precepts, practicing the precepts, understanding this range of practice from gross to subtle with the precepts, and really noticing the joy. Like another, I think I might have mentioned this last week, but I can't remember. But another thing that comes out of the tradition, the Buddha says, is that the scent of sila is the one thing that goes everywhere in the universe. Like uh, somebody who has a lot of integrity, all the gods in the most subtle realms smell that person. And it's a beautiful fragrance. And that's, that's kind of neat. And I think we pick that up. You know, when, when you come across somebody who has a lot of integrity, it doesn't take us long to tune into that. Because just on an energetic level, we feel really safe around somebody who has a lot of integrity. Because we, there's some energetic sense that they're not going to act out their anger or their greed or their delusion in ways that are going to be harmful to me. And so I can trust them, like I can trust their heart. doesn't mean they're perfect, it just means like I don't have to be afraid of them. And that's like Sila is this, the most beautiful gift too then to the world because what we're offering to the people we're around is the gift of safety. You don't need to be afraid of me because my Sila is, has a, a lot of momentum. You know, it has a, it's a real force, not easily put aside, not easily forgotten. Other thoughts about sila? Yeah. Uh, I think I said like, that would be terrific or that would be great or something like that. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with what Dave said. And, you know, it's like uh, what Bob was saying about emails too. It, you know, it's interesting. I find real delight after I write an email doing just what Dave was pointing to, going back through it and seeing different ways where maybe I was overly solicitous with this person, like trying to take care of them in a way I don't need to take care of them, or uh, being more cheery than I need to be, or whatever it might be, but just like cleaning it up and being a little bit more simple, a little bit more direct, and then feeling good about that, like feeling good to have taken the time to do it right, and to say what it needs to be said. And the thing is, it can either be a chore that makes us tired or it can be something that energizes us if we appreciate, like, well, yeah, that's, that is actually better to have taken the time. Thanks for bringing that up. That's really important. <laughs> See, this is one of the advantages of being technically, you know, limited is... I know they exist, but I'm not sure how you do them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And instead of feeling like uh, neurotic by all the sensitivity we get in the practice, we can be appreciative, like, like Bob just picking up, like, did I say that to get attention? Like, we could even, that could feel a little overwhelming to be so reflective, you know, in that way. But like, what's the harm? in having that question. Because you don't have to use it as a club. You know, it's like, it's just an interesting question. What was the motivation for that comment? And, uh, yeah, because sensitivity that we naturally get as we cultivate the practice is a little bit hard to handle. It's like, uh, you know, we started out, for those of you who are old enough to remember, we started out as novas. It's just sort of a clunky car. We used to have one as a kid, you know. And then, and then as we practice, we become this really high-performance car. It's like, it's got a lot of power. And it sees a lot more than we ever wanted to see in ourselves and in others. So in a way, it's easier for, to be judgmental of others and of ourselves because we're just so sensitive. We just, the mind is attuned to the defilements. It just tastes them when they're there, even in subtle ways. And hopefully, we get just as attuned to the positive, wholesome states, because that will be really nourishing to see that. And we can just be grateful for the sensitivity. It's only when we're taking everything personally that the sensitivity is overwhelming, which, of course, is a lot of the time. 
But if we could just remember, I don't have to take what I'm seeing personally. And then, then the sensitivity is a good thing. But if we, if it feels personal, it, it can feel overwhelming. It's like, then we just want to go home and, and watch a, not even a good movie, just a movie with a lot of loudness, you know? Car crashes and sex and, and popcorn too. <laughs> and probably a cherry Coke. <laughs> right? Just like, dense experience because we just are tired of being sensitive. And you see that, like that rebound effect after a retreat and what people want to do after the retreat. Just, uh, it's like, I don't want to be a sensitive human being anymore. Other thoughts about sila? Yeah, Sharon. So, someone sometimes, I sometimes refer to myself as a recovering perfectionist. And I work with a lot of folks who really struggle deeply with perfectionism. Um, this practice the last few weeks, last few weeks, has really um, given me the opportunity to practice and be really gentle with myself because I've noticed this increasing sensitivity around sort of, especially speech, um, and noticing myself getting into the habit of judging and sort of analyzing, oh, now I should have said it like that, you know, and, and some of the sensitivity, it's been beneficial because there's been things I've noticed. Oh, yeah, let's let's clean this up or let's be more uh, thoughtful about that. But I just wonder because um, I noticed it tonight, this sense of, oh, you need to, and then again stepping back, no, this is now going too far. So it's, it's about effort. Right effort. Um, so I think there's a question somewhere. How to work with that because I know for myself my tendency is just, let's just do more, and let's, you know, um, I've been really trying to shift it toward, again, being gentle. And also being able to attune to what's positive, not just to the negative side of it. And this is like you could, like another way you could do this is just in, a, in terms of a more formal mudita, appreciative joy practice. And, and then again, this lends itself to daily life. So, do it formally in a meditation period because you'll deepen the groove, but then just play with it all day long where you're, but now your mudita is just around sila and you're just appreciating people who are spontaneously generous, effortlessly generous, people who are just, you see, are really committed to some positive ideal around generosity or around non-harming or whatever. Um, and people who are working hard at restraint and sort of really using concern, wholesome concern in a positive way, and, and also in yourself, and you're just appreciating it. Like, you know somebody really is attracted to you, or you know somebody, you know, really wants something from you, but you see them restraining themselves, you know, and you can just really appreciate, like, like how they're really protecting the space that we have interacting together. And like really appreciating that they're, like you know they're angry, you know they want to like give you a zinger, but they're not. And we can really appreciate, or obviously the same if we see it in ourselves. And then like really, uh, like you almost want to say to your mind, that is a beautiful thing, that's a beautiful quality. May this continue, may it increase, may it never end. So that you have a sense like this was, this is a good thing, this would be great for it to blossom to be a bigger force in this person's life or just generally in the world. Because a lot of us, we're just not that good at appreciating what's beautiful and wholesome. So it has to, the mind has to be trained. And it's not so much that it's bad to see what's unwholesome. It is really good to be sensitive in that way. It's just out of balance. And even if you are seeing a lot of what's not right, you can appreciate the rightness of that, but it may not be the right moment. But in some moments, you can. You can just flip it right then, like appreciating, like it's really good to see this. This is a good thing. This is, it's wisdom that sees this. And that way, you might be able to distinguish the judgment from the, the clarity of the mind that sees that if this gets acted out, there will be unpleasant, unwholesome consequences for me and for others. Thanks, Sharon.
Yeah, Mary. I had an interesting experience last week, sort of thinking about right speech, right action, where I think it was a really beautiful day, and <laughs> I just felt like I was almost having an out-of-body experience in terms of my joy around it. I mean, I just felt like my body was vibrating. And it, I decided to turn it kind of into an experiment because I think sometimes when I feel that way, I can work more or I can, that energy can be misused. Yeah. And so I, I said to myself, careful. But then I went to the hardware store and I had a light bulb that was kind of a difficult one to find. And I showed it to one of the employees. And of course, he found it immediately. This isn't a big deal, but I was like overly exuberant about his ability to find this light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy kind of looks at me like, oh, I've been doing this for 30 years. <laughs> and, and so clearly, my message really did do anything for him. Mm -hmm. And what was really lovely about it is that I was observing it, and when I went up to the car, instead of being really disappointed in myself, I kind of thought, well, okay, there you go. Yeah. You know, this happened because I wasn't, I mean, I was seeing the energy, but I wasn't, like, thoughtful with it or something. Yeah. Even though I was watching it. Yeah, yeah. So it's... Jo joy is intoxicating. But your example is such a perfect example because it's so ordinary and subtle. A perfect example how regret, in a wholesome sense, operates. Like getting back to the car and just that subtle, you know, it probably wasn't heavy, heavy. You know, just that subtle sense like, yeah, that wasn't, it wasn't perfectly clean. You know, and that's exactly the, like, oh, and it's so, like if we could just have the recognition and it's so, Good that the mind is sensitive enough to know that. Because it would be so easy to miss that. And just turn the radio on to avoid that yucky feeling, you know, or to continue. Now, the interesting thing about exuberance is it is the near enemy. Because the, it, ma the near en enemy of appreciative joy, because it masquerades as real wholesome joy. And it's when, like, the beauty from maybe it was just a nice spring day that was triggering it. So the mind's inability to be intimate with the joy leads to it sort of proliferating, sort of getting, whipping up some froth and just looking for something to froth about, like the great confidence of the guy at the hardware store. <laughs> I know, I mean, I think we all kind of nodded our head because we all know in those moments when we're feeling high that it, it's very easy for the energy to leak because it's actually we don't have the wherewithal to just be there with the expanded state of mind. It takes a lot of, uh, I don't know, I, I want to say the word integrity. It takes a lot of uh, wisdom to first recognize that there is joy and to realize that there's danger in joy. It's because uh, it wants to expand, and that means we have to let go of control. You know, to really let joy in means letting go of control. So instead of letting control go of control, we're going to act on it. We're going to take it personally and try to, you know, do something with it. But what it really wants to do is just sort of like a big wave. It just wants to carry us away. And the self will disappear for a while. But that's not an easy way to be, to sort of just surrender open to joy, to let it take over. Instead, we, we manage it, and then that's when it gets a little neurotic. You know, we don't know what to do with it. And we sing. Like even singing. I'm not saying sometimes singing is just the perfect way. It's like, better than antidepressants, you know, or whatever else you might do, green tea. And just to put some music on and to sing a little bit or to move your body um, can just completely change the attitude. But it also arises in these areas where there's some joy and we don't know what to do with it. Or some... What are some examples of what to do with it? Because actually I thought when I was saying, 
thought, well, that was weird. I thought, I would have been better off saving it for the car and literally singing or singing. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you saying that's not a healthy thing? The, the best thing to do if you can, like yeah. what I might do is I might lie down so that I can just practice this more unconditional surrender and not do anything with it. Just let the joy do what it wants to do instead of trying to practice with it. And so it's like, to begin with, the mind uses the pleasantness as its initial object so that it doesn't get carried away into some self-identity about the pleasantness. So you concentrate or put your attention on the pleasantness, but it's more as a means to release the tendency of the mind that the mind has to want to control it or to make something out of it. But basically, when you get better at it, it's like you just... You're just surrendering. It's really a, a movement of trust or surrender, uh, of not doing anything. But it's really it's scary. So don't think this is. I don't think this is easy. I think this is really hard. It's actually for most of us, I think, easier to work with painful, difficult experience than it is with experiences of joy. Maybe because we just haven't had as much practice. You know, it doesn't arise as often for humans. Most humans. Thanks for bringing that all up. That's good and. And interestingly, it, re- it has a lot to do with sila because personally, as somebody who has a lot of that kind of big energy, happy energy, you know, at times in my life, I've noticed, I have a funny story to tell, perfect example of how joy, when not contained, can lead to trouble. We had this this intense third grade teacher, she seemed like she was in her 90s. She was a nun, Catholic nun. And it was at that time where there were, some of the nuns were starting to cut back on their habits, but not this nun. Sister Cecilia, I remember her name. Tall, austere woman who uh, taught for years in the, in, the, in the sort of middle of nowhere in Montana and then moved to Minneapolis and taught us. And... Uh, she was great. I mean, I really respected her. I really liked her, except this one time. And she had, she had a couple kind of cruel things. But anyway, <laughs> I was just, I was in a, just an expanded, happy state there in third grade. <laughs> and it's the end of the day. I was going to go home. And uh, she told us, like, what we needed to do. And it was a little bit what Bob was pointing to. I, I kind of raised my hand. And I asked something that I already kind of knew the answer to. And I don't know why. It was just like I didn't know what to do with my energy. And it was just like, you know. And somehow she picked this up. And she just nailed me. Like she laid it to me. And then this, she had this thing she would do where she would hit you. <laughs> and you'd end up biting your tongue, you know. I mean, it wasn't like really hard. It was, but it was scary. I mean, for a third grader, it was a scary thing. And... uh I think I cried, I, you know, not because it was so painful, but just the whole, the whole trip of being in that expanded state and then it being pointed out. Like I really saw what happened, that I was just a little bit acting out that exuberance and, uh, and she was not going to have any of it, you know. <laughs> so it's just an example of how we can get into trouble. And I see that so many places in my life where... I'll say things to people that then I later regret, like it sets something in motion then that I have to then set, take out of motion. And then there's hurt feelings because I wasn't attentive to that expansive energy. I kind of got identified with it, top of the world, everything's great. But the world isn't great, it's just what it is. And to sort of lose sight of that can cause problems. And maybe there are other examples in the room too of that exuberant energy. So we make mistakes in terms of our ethical conduct when we're overly depressed or heavy or weighed down by life and also when we're exuberant. So whenever, however the mind gets out of balance, then we lose our clarity. We don't know how to respond appropriately in the moment. What else comes to mind about these five precepts? So for those of you so we're looking at the five areas, like Ajahn Armo talks about these as, these are the places where we tend to make mistakes. 
And if you don't train in these five ways, it's like learning to drive a car without learning to use the brake. So we have the commitment to non-harming, to not stealing, to really paying attention around our sexuality, sexual activities, paying attention around speech and around consumption, especially around things that are intoxicating, consuming things that are intoxicating or addicting. And we want to learn, we want to see like, uh, like a, and appreciate the positive force of restraint, of wholesome concern, wholesome regret. We want to really see the positive force of aspiration, like being able to envision how to be skillful so that we can make a commitment to like being a generous person, being a kind person, being somebody who doesn't drink alcohol or whatever it might be, or being somebody who never has more than one drink. So like putting that into positive, you know, uh, images, an identity, a positive identity that helps us let go of a negative identity or to step out of a negative identity and then to a more effortless expression of non-harming coming out of like stepping out of self-centered dramas and just seeing how skill comes naturally in those moments. Other thoughts? Yeah, Robert. What I've personally experienced in my life are those kind of East Coasters that what works best is when they tell me that this is who they are. I'm somebody who just, I'm just going to tell you what's on my mind or I'm just going to say it bluntly. Like they warned me you know, I've, I've had several relationships where they basically say, and not just once, but often, you know, I'm being really direct. And uh, I've actually, I've learned to appreciate it. I mean, it was hard. It was, it did, it was hurtful initially. And I spent a long time on the East Coast too, but I'm not an East Coaster, but I, I don't know, maybe six or seven years. Well, I went to high school there too, so I guess longer. So maybe a total of nine or ten years. Um, so I kind of, I know that energy. And uh, and I think there's something like you could see it as you're, you know, a missionary from the East Coast. That kind of help balance. And just like we're going to help balance you, you know, you're going to help balance us. Yeah. But there's something to this whole balance thing, you know, both in terms of feminine energy and masculine energy or assertive and receptive. Like in terms of sila, you know, that's why it's so, it has to be pragmatic and kind of where we're at in any moment. Like do we, to bring the heart into balance, do we need more of that assertive quality because the way the mind is acting in unskillful ways has more to do with a dependency on receptivity or uh, of holding back. And, and we need just the opposite. And then other times, of course, we're, where the mind is dependent on being assertive and forward, and it really needs to learn this other way of being, of being receptive and yielding. And so that's the thing. It can't be, this is like such an important transition in just the study and development of sila from taking our cues from a certain, like, strategy, like even modeling ourselves after another human being that we think really has got it down in terms of sila practice or teachings of the Buddha or any book we've read, to a much more nuanced, like sila is a moment-to-moment practice. And it's either done with blunt instruments of restraint and regret and concern, or it's used, it's moment-to-moment done with this more positive, like things that the heart naturally aspires to, that feels good about, feels committed to, or a more powerful trusting, uh, trusting in non-grasping and seeing how that then manifests. But in any case, whatever level we're practicing at, total complete trust or using the blunt instruments of restraint, it has to be moment to moment. But initially, you know, we take up a rule you know, like the precept, training in non-harming. Okay, I'm not going to kill mosquitoes. I'm not going to just vacuum up spiders, you know. 
I'm going to reflect on non-harming when I go to the grocery stores and see what that looks like. I have to not harm this body, but I also don't want to harm other living creatures. And I don't know the right way, but I'm going to hold it as I shop, as I eat. So all of these things, you know, we're going to play with moment by moment with all these different instruments that we have to kind of keep it alive. And not just use it as a, okay, I've met this standard and now I don't have to practice. You know, I've, I'm, I'm better than most. Or, you know, I've, I've, I meet the letter of the law so then I don't have to practice. See, that's not sila in a, in a deeper sense. We want that uneasiness like we're never done because there's always another moment. So what does sila look like now? This is that uh, we've talked a couple times about Sharon's phrase, the torment of continuity. It's like the practice doesn't end. That's actually the hardest thing about the practice. It never ends. It just becomes impersonal at some point, so there's nobody doing it. But the practice never ends. The attention to karma, to cause and effect, never ends. The difference between an enlightened being and somebody like us is we feel to some degree that we're we're responsible for paying attention to karma, to cause and effect, so that we don't harm ourselves and others. And an enlightened being also is paying attention to karma, but there's nobody there doing it. It's just nature doing it. Nature is attentive to karma. It's an effort, effort, that personality that's attending to karma, there's no center to it. So it's not a problem for anybody. It's just activity, the activity of mind and body with no center. So then it's not stressful to be sensitive and responding skillfully to all that the mind heart is picking up because it's just the natural system doing it. But for us, beings that are projecting uh, somebody at the middle of all this sensitivity trying to do a good job, it feels burdensome. And so our practice, you see like this world of karma and sila is perfectly designed lead to full and complete awakening. Because the more we own our moral reality, like our actions matter to ourselves and to others, clearly, I mean, there's just so much suffering and we're all part of this suffering on this planet. So the more we own our moral position on this planet, like there are children who don't have enough food right now. You know, And whether we know that or not, it's true. We could be doing things. So this is a, this is an uncomfortable place for us. And so here we are trying to negotiate something like we live in a planet where life eats life, and yet we have instinctually a reverence for life because we care about this life. That just comes with, you know, the mind-body phenomena. We care about this life and we can't help, you know, with the sophisticated mind we have, Everybody cares about their life. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to be harmed. So we have this profound sensitivity. And not only that, we're cultivating the sensitivity. We're becoming more intuitive, more sensitive, more awake to all the different ways your words hurt me, your look hurts me, my look, my not responding to your email until four days causes you know, like all the different ways we step on each other's toes. We're so sensitive to that. The only way we can handle that sensitivity and without ignoring it or distancing ourselves from it is to remove the center. So it's just nature doing the best it can in a world where life eats life, where we want not to harm, but yet there's no way to live without doing some harm. So how to be wholehearted in the non-harming, knowing that we'll never perfectly succeed at it. The only, only an enlightened being, somebody who has teased out all of the self-centeredness, all of the establishing of a center, the person who has to be skillful, that's the most skillful. Right? That's where liberation is. And that's the perfection of sila, this third aspect where there's nobody being Nobody practicing non-harming. Nobody intending to not harm. So that the practice of non-harming is nature. It's just nature doing it. Just the activity of mind.
just a couple minutes left if there's any last thought that seems appropriate. I'll send out a, an interesting article that uh, the POC group, the People of Color group found, um, and they had a discussion around, around sexuality. I'll put that out. And next, uh, next week we'll talk about livelihood. And really, like this is another, just fits perfectly with what I just said. Like we all have to earn a living, but who has a way of earning a living that doesn't cause harm one way or another? And how to hold that. Any last thoughts for the group that feel good to bring out? And let's just sit for a minute together, take a couple breaths. Read a paragraph from the Dalai Lama in his uh, book, Ethics for the New Millennium. He wrote, The best way to ensure that when we approach death, we do so without remorse is to ensure that in the present moment we conduct ourselves responsibly and with compassion for others. Actually, this is our own, this is in our own interest, and not just because it will benefit us in the future. As we have seen, compassion is one of the principal things that make our lives meaningful. It is a source of all lasting happiness and joy. It is the foundation of a good heart, the heart of one who acts out of a desire to help others. Through kindness, through affection, through honesty, through truth and justice toward all others, we ensure our own benefit. This is not a matter for complicated theorizing. It is a matter of common sense. There is no denying that consideration of others is worthwhile. There is no denying that our happiness is inextricably bound up with the happiness of others. There is no denying that if society suffers, we suffer, we ourselves suffer. Nor is there any denying that the more our hearts and minds are afflicted with ill will, the more miserable we become. Thus, we can reject everything else, religion, ideology, all received wisdom, but we cannot escape the necessity of love and compassion. This, then, is my true religion, this simple faith. In this sense, there is no need for temple or church or mosque or synagogue, no need for complicated philosophy, doctrine, or dogma. Our own heart, our own mind, is the temple. The doctrine is compassion love for others and respect for their rights and dignity, no matter who or what they are. Ultimately, these are all we need. So long as we practice these in our daily lives, then no matter if we are learned or unlearned, whether we believe in Buddha or God or follow some other religion or none at all, as long as we have compassion for others and and conduct ourselves with restraint out of a sense of responsibility, there is no doubt we will be happy. Thanks, everyone. May we all be happy practicing sila this week and weeks to come. <laughs>